Welcome to episode 28 of the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist in Arkansas, who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. My guest for this episode is Joy Randolph, a health coach and what she calls a gift coach from the UK. She tells her inspiring story of overcoming a life-threatening illness and tips on living your best life. You'll get to meet her right after this. Who's got the itch? You know, the one you get when you're watching all the DIY shows or HGTV and you're thinking, I want to do that with my bathroom. Well, I got a guy and an entire family who can help you with those projects. And they're not just dreams anymore. They are reality when you shop at Akel's Carpet One. Akel's Carpet One Floor and Home has all the products. They are an Arkansas-based company with Arkansas roots, Arkansas family, and they can help you every step of the way. Carpet, luxury vinyl, hardwood, tile, kitchen and bath. They're helping me in the house I'm building. They've helped me with the house that I'm selling. I mean, all the things I know I can go to Akel's Carpet One and they can get me the best price because get this, they will beat the big box stores on price and then they give you the service to back up the sale. You got yourself a winner. Find out more by going to AkelsCarpetOne.com. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. Okay, here we go. We're going to talk to someone who's across the pond and has um, some letters and words beside her name that are kind of unique, and I want to know more about, I thought you were just a health coach, but you have more than that in your title. What do you call yourself? So I'm, I call myself a gift coach. So I really help women discover their gifts and develop them and fulfill their purpose so they can create a joyful life. And your name being Joy, that was so cute. Yes. That was such a good marketing move from your parents. <laughs> yeah, no, Not so knowing. Totally, totally. I was actually named after my auntie who's called Rejoice. And uh, I was just called Rejoice growing up. And Joy has just been my nickname. And uh, I didn't realize how handy it would be. So very lucky. <laughs> so did you grow up in the UK? Uh, yes, sort of. So I was actually born in a tiny country called Lesotho, which is surrounded by another country called South Africa. So I lived in Lesotho, South Africa, before moving to Ghana and Cambodia. And then eventually I moved to England and I've been here ever since. Were all those countries British rule, monarchy rule? Um, I know that um, Lesotho and South Africa were um, not so much sure about Ghana and I don't think Cambodia. Um, but yeah, I know it was just really interesting because I, even when I learned English, my mom remarried an Englishman. And when they married, I didn't actually speak any English. So he had, he was adopting a daughter who was like, really just from like the middle of nowhere in Africa, speaking no words other than saying thank you and hello. And I needed to go to school in Ghana and I needed to go into international schools, but I I only had a really short time when I could actually uh, learn how to speak English to go to school. So I used to watch a lot of American TV. And so I have what I call a I'm confused sorry. accent. <laughs> What were your, inf- I'm afraid to ask, you do know that we drive on the right side of the road, yes. meaning the correct side of the road, but yeah. what are some influences that shaped you? Probably the reason you had to become a, a gift coach and a health coach to help people get yes. out of their heads. But what did you watch growing up from uh, the States? 
Um, the things that I used to watch were things like Dexter's Laboratory. Um, I, th- <laughs> I, I think I'd probably say the biggest influence for me was actually watching sport because I just used to love football. And I remember used, I used to play football, um, in my, in my pa- grandparents' back garden. And every, every weekend I'd watch it on the TV screen with my grandfather. And, I remember saying to him, I was three, I said, oh, one day I'm going to play football in England. And he just looked at me like, what? Because at the time we didn't know anyone in England. The probability of that even happening was probably less than 1%. And um, it just, it didn't seem feasible. And yet many years later, I did end up being in England and then playing football at the highest level. Um, and it was just a dream. And so that was kind of the beginning of me really trying to figure out like, how do you know, even if you're young or even if you're much older, how do you know what's that thing that, that really lights you up? In a small lost in translation sidebar, we're, you're talking what we call soccer. Oh yeah, soccer, right. <laughs> right. Because yeah. they're thinking, how did that nice girl put football pads on and hit people? Yes, no. I don't think I would no. be putting football pads on, yeah. Right. Okay, so let, let's talk about some of your opportunities then. Uh, did you feel like you, I, I don't know your age, yes. so what, what were you playing um English football yes. in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. So, oh yeah, wow, the timings. I, like, so I just turned 30, so I've, I think I've forgotten, um, I've forgotten so maybe years. maybe the 90s, yes. probably the 90s, yes. you're a young girl. It, yes, it was, it was It was actually started in, in the 2000s, because it was just after okay. my ninth my ninth birthday, and I was born in 1991. So um, yeah, from around 2000, that's when I started. And at the time, football still wasn't that big of a thing. I always looked at America as kind of being leading in, in women's soccer. Um, because it was just so awesome. And I remember actually wanting to get a scholarship to study in, in the States so I could do medicine. And um, health was something that was always really interesting to me um, because of sport. And um, and yeah, and, it, and now when I think about it in the last few years, women's soccer, at least in the UK, has really picked up. Um, but I've now moved on. And I guess that's one thing is that sometimes you might start doing something in your um, teens or in your 20s or in your 30s and then your life changes and then your gifts or your passions change and so it's been really interesting to kind of evolve as my life stages change as well well i don't know if your gifting changes your interests might change you know yes i think an athlete i, I mean the athletes i know are just athletes yes and the rest of us have to work hard <laughs> to follow suit to do what they do so naturally, but you know, our interests change. And even for me, a non-athlete, I've always enjoyed physical activity. Yes. Um, I love staying active and busy and whatever it is. I really did my first really tough yoga yesterday. I've been doing beginners for a while, but I am student at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. And my daughter is too, she's in Dallas and she's been doing yoga for a while. And she's just like, the things that will help you do, and so I just thought, well, here I am, old dog, new tricks. Okay, I'll learn them. That's amazing. But it, just, it just shows though too that any age, it's my desire. I, I really, it's mindset. Yes. Okay, l- let's go to that then as someone who helps people both with career advice and um, health coaching advice and gifting advice. Don't you think, Joy, so much of what we do starts right here with mindset? Oh, totally. It's just one of those things where it's, it's kind of as though you're, in my view, I feel as though sometimes it depends on how, how open you allow your heart to feel. So for example, for me, when I really knew that I wanted to pursue 
health coaching, at the start, it was a hu- I had a huge fear on, can you make money doing this? What if it doesn't work? Um, I, I was working as in the city as a, um, as a consultant for global brands. I thought, I'm in a really comfortable, steady role. Do I really want to change things? It's just so much fear. And I wouldn't allow myself to feel the joy that health and wellness brought me. And it's only when I essentially just cracked that open that I was able to really move forward and actually take action despite the fear. Um, and it's, it's all the stuff in the in the head that really gets in the way of you kind of really pursuing and following your heart. But then there's the heart stuff, but then there's actually like the actual overcoming the challenges and the struggles and the difficulty that isn't necessarily what's in your heart, but it's just the logistics of actually showing up and doing the work. And sometimes the work can feel quite difficult. What did you learn as a health coaching student at IIN, the same yeah. facility where I'm attending or get to attend online? It's really, I mean, it's a world leader, you know, from Dr. Oz to Dr. Wild. To- yes. Uh, Mark Hyman, you know, the, the leaders in functional medicine are the ones who say, and I love their philosophy, Joy. It's it's almost like if we could start on a grassroots effort a level, changing people's mind about food, nutrition, we could cure obesity. Oh, you yes, know, that's how totally. I feel. I really feel like it's in our hands and we have a huge responsibility. But what do you feel like you learned at IIN that you already maybe didn't know as a coach or just as someone with intuition? I think the biggest thing for me is, is that Prior to going to IIN, I thought that health was purely about nutrition and exercise. If you eat right and you exercise, you'll be healthy. But one of the things that I learned, which I later on realized was so true, but I, it really hit home for me when I was there, was how there, there's so many different things that affect your health. And it could be, uh, you know, kind of like primary and the secondary foods, but really thinking about um, is your work life, is your relationships, like what are the areas of your life are affecting your well-being? And it's kind of, the, it reminds me of the saying when someone says, um, like I've, I've had friends or someone say maybe that I'm about to go through a divorce or going through something difficult. And they're saying, man, staying in this is killing me. And it might sound like just a phrase that you're saying, saying, but it may actually be literally taking so much of your, uh, not only just energy, but actually your, your, your wellness. And so that was a big aha moment. And then I later on, long, not long after I graduated, I think within a year of graduating, I got diagnosed with a rare tumor. And so I, I remember just being like, wow, here I was being this athlete who was really focused on nutrition, never drank alcohol, never smoked, doesn't have a family history of cancer or tumors and I get a tumor on my pancreas that is borderline malignant, like the randomness of it. And I was like, I, I, I did the exercise and nutrition right, but I did have a lot of you know, childhood trauma and I, had, I did have a lot of um, other stuff going on which may have contributed to it. And so that's really been the thing that has been so fascinating for me. And that's definitely something I'm obsessed with. Well, do you think then as a health coaching, uh, both when you were a student and now as a profession, that we are being taught to really look introspectively yes. and to really, we're the best monitor. I don't need lab values to tell, I, I'm a thyroid patient. I can tell you what my thyroid's doing almost to the penny <laughs> because I know myself so well. Do you feel like, Joy, that you knew yourself? Because a growth on a pancreas is not a normal thing. No. And it's not, it probably doesn't have real symptoms. 
So what got you to the point where you were diagnosed? Yeah, I think it's kind of there. There, there weren't really any obvious symptoms. And I think that there's some there's some health issues that are really clear and obvious, but with the pancreas, it wasn't so. And so for me, I just started getting really dizzy and I was my heart was racing really fast. And I remember I used to wear like a fitness tracker because I really wanted to count my steps and my heartbeat was always <laughs> really high. And the thing is that every time I would go to the hospital and I'd say, look, I, I think something's wrong. They do all the checks, nothing ever came up. And I basically was showing symptoms for five years and no one ever looked into it because of my medical history of, well, you are an athlete. Well, look how fit you are. And you are under 25. Like what under 25 year old really has heart issues if structurally your heart is fine? It wasn't until I had one episode where I basically um, lost vision in one eye whilst I was running. So I was <laughs> running down the street and I can't see through one eye. I'm thinking, okay, this isn't normal. And then later on that night, I ended up um, having stroke-like symptoms where I had severe chest pains, my left side, basically the left side of my body was just like completely limp, uh, droopy left side of my face. And I go into hospital and the doctor says, I don't know what's wrong with you, but um, uh, let's just hope it doesn't happen again. <laughs> that's all you got? That's all I got. And I remember thinking, that's it? Just, you said, just let's hope it doesn't happen again. And if it doesn't, then we'll just put it behind you. And if it does, then then I guess we'll have to look into it. And it was only then that my mother said, okay, you really need to see a specialist. And so I went to see a cardiologist. Cardiologist looks at me, says, there's nothing wrong with you. But then he calls me back that night to say, I'm so sorry. I know I said there's nothing wrong with your heart, but when I enlarge the scans, uh, someone spotted a tiny mass on what looks like your liver. I call the liver specialist. The liver specialist says, no, it's not on your liver, it's on your pancreas. And then within two weeks from that discovery, I was in surgery having multiple organs taken out and it was an absolute necessity and it all happened so fast. So to go from being told nothing for five years to getting one clue and then getting an operation within two weeks um, is, is crazy. It was benign. Yes. Um, well, yes, it's, um, it's a... It's a one in a million. <laughs> There's so many things that I would love to happen that might be one in a million, but this was not one of them. <laughs> right. And, um, and uh, it's a it's called a borderline um, malignant tumor, which basically means that depending on the stage that it's found, it can either be benign or it can be aggressive. And the stage that it was found, um, I, I guess I had two advantages. One was that it had grown so big, it was bigger than a grown man's fist. It was massive. Um, the advantage of it growing that big is that sometimes it hasn't yet um, become very aggressive. Sometimes the smaller the tumor, sometimes the more aggressive right. it, and it can be. So even though I didn't like the size of it and the size of it was what was causing my heart issues because it was pressing on my major blood vessels and the circulation was going, um, it, it was helping it not to spread. So that was great. So um, it was able to get removed and I've, you know, I've had a really great recovery, but I do really credit a lot of the stuff that I learned at IAN for my healing, because if I hadn't have known everything about um, not just the nutrition and the fitness, but also just really looking inward and feeling an inner sense of peace so that when, whilst I was recovering, I could really be in a great headspace, like emotionally, um, in addition to physically. 
insane story. Uh, were they able to preserve your pancreas? Very important part half, of the human body. Very important, half of it. <laughs> so, um, but it's 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 one of those things where I believe my doctor said I had like a fifty percent chance of all sorts of issues such as malnutrition, um, hernias, um, a recurrence of the tumor. But if it does recur, like if it comes back, it tends to be much more aggressive. Um, so I still have to do my scans and stuff um, and diabetes and pregnancy complications and all that sort of stuff. Um, and fortunately I've had few complications. I still had, I've had a couple like in my pregnancy, um, but- Oh, you uh, did yeah. have a pregnancy since then? Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't realize there would be pregnancy complications because I remember my surgeon saying, well, it's not in your reproductive system area, so you'll be fine. So as soon as I felt fine, my husband and I like, okay, okay, let's have a baby. And then I had, I got pregnant and then at 18 weeks, I ended up getting a, a, a total obstruction. And um, even that process, I guess that's the other thing. What I learned at IAN is how to listen to your body, the importance of listening to your body. Because if you ignore what your body is telling you, um, it could, in my case, it was literally a difference of life and death. Because when I was um, 18 weeks pregnant, I started having these pains and I phoned the, um, um, yeah, basically I phoned the hospital and they were telling me it was a miscarriage. So the um, ambulance come in and they're saying, no, it's a miscarriage. They're only gonna take me to the maternity ward. And a voice in my heart said, it's not a miscarriage, it's an obstruction. Problem was, I didn't know what obstruction was. So <laughs> I didn't know what the symptoms were, but I just heard it's an obstruction. So the- You uh, really I did? I really did. And the paramedic said to me, how do you know it's an obstruction? And I just said, I just know. And they said, do you know the symptoms of an obstruction? I said, no, but I just know it's an <laughs> obstruction. And they're like, yeah. Yeah, lady. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I remember we were driving, um, I was driving in the back of the ambulance and I was in so much pain and said, look, lady, we really have to decide. You know, we have to take you to the maternity ward. And I said, no, I'm gonna go to A&E and I want my scan. And I get to the scan and they agree to do it. And they say, actually, yeah, it was an obstruction. Um, but they would not have looked at that um, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't for that feeling. So did they relieve the blockage and it didn't affect the baby? Uh, yeah, so they relieved the blockage and um, it was it was all just a miracle really because uh, the surgeon that was there, he, he didn't speak English and um, it's kind of tough if you're living in England and you don't speak English and your team don't understand what you're saying. And they didn't wanna operate on me because I, I was already a complex case because um, organs had already been taken out from my previous surgery. So they didn't really know what they were opening up. Um, and so it wasn't until seven days later after not eating, um, not drinking anything for seven days that a random- Seven days? Seven as a days, pregnant woman, you were not able to eat or drink? Exactly, exactly. I'm sorry, give me a yeah. moment. <sighs> yeah, and I remember this random surgeon comes in on the seventh day 
And he says, what are you they doing? They were giving you flu IV fluids, I would assume, um, for glucose no, or something? They weren't giving me that much because, um, yeah, I remember they weren't giving me that much, partly because they didn't, they didn't want anything to go down. They just wanted it to resolve itself. So I was basically running on empty. And uh, I just remember this random surgeon coming in saying, look, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I don't know, who are you? <laughs> what are you doing here? And he, he looked at my scans and he looked at the team. He says, she needs to be operated on now. And so I had the operation and it wasn't until six weeks later, he said to me, I don't want to tell you this on the day, but if I didn't operate you operate on you then, you would have lost your baby within 12 hours and you had been gone within 24 hours. And the other surgeon, he was going to wait to see you for another 24 hours. You, you wouldn't have made it to the 24 hours. And I just remember thinking, oh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that in my pregnancy. That um, is not, talk of, okay. One thing we learned at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, IIN, is about what stress does. Yes. And even though we do all the things right, right? I, we eat all the kale, we do all the yoga, we get all the sunshine. There are stress factors that we have no control over. Totally. And that was one. You were you were on the straight and narrow, Joy. Yes. With your health, with your emotional health. And here this was happening. That that causes women to miscarry sometimes that type of stress. It does. So it what what did you do to get your you know, one of the things we're learning is the deep breathing. And you know, this is not pie in the sky. I mean, this stuff works. But what were you doing to cope during an extremely stressful time? I think there are kind of two things that I was doing. Um, for, actually, really three things. So when before I had my baby, I remember when I was having my actual recovery from my surgery, um, most patients have a complication after the first surgery that I had. I had zero complications. And I remember my surgeon saying to me, that I had one of the best recoveries he's ever seen. And he's a he's a leading pancreatic cancer specialist and he's done these surgeries for over 20 years. And he was asking me a similar question is, which is what did you do that helped you recover so quickly? And for me, it was really just holding on to two things. One, holding on to my decision to live. So I want to live and That's I good. want to live a really good life. And so for me, it wasn't just about getting through the moment or just surviving it was okay how can i make progress bit by bit so that i can one day return to feeling like i'm living a full life because the quality of life of someone that's had a pancreatic tumor or pancreatic cancer generally isn't always that good. I know a lot of patients who've maybe overcome the cancer, but the surgery is so complex that they still have pains and um, problems and issues years and years to come. Um, and I remember one thing that would really, really help me was literally just trying to do one thing better today that I couldn't do yesterday. So whether it was literally taking one step, which right now as I'm walking, one step doesn't seem like anything major. But when I was really in the thick of it, it was how can I just take one extra step? Um, how can I lift one extra thing? And I would literally celebrate the tiniest of wins. And I was so happy, kind of now that I think about it, it's kind of like how now that I have my daughter, 
when she starts taking those extra few steps as her mom, I'm so happy and I'm so joyful and it encourages her to keep going. Um, and I was kind of doing that to myself and uh, that really helped. But then in the case of when I was actually pregnant, it was different because you know, there was the 18 week saga and then there was the actual birth which I'm thinking I've made it to term after everything, the baby's healthy, made it to term. And then when my baby was born, she wasn't breathing for five minutes. <laughs> Come on. No, and I just, I Now remember, what's that about? Exactly, it's because when she, basically I was supposed to have a planned C-section. So I've heard lots of women talking about how if you have a planned C-section, it's very different from an emergency C-section because everything's organized. So I was thinking this is a planned C-section. I had already started labor a little bit earlier than my date, but they moved it forward. So it was still planned. Is this because of your innards? They, they, yes. they wanted you to have, they didn't want you to have a vaginal birth. They didn't want me to have a vaginal birth because they just didn't know what was going to happen. They just wanted to kind of control it. And so, uh, so I go in, I'm, I'm there on the operating table. I've got my playlist. I'm going to listen to the Lion King. In my mind, I'm visualizing well, yeah, exactly, you are. exactly right. when they lift her up. I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm tracking the whole time. Yes. And then she comes and Simba out. appears. Simba appears. <laughs> And then they refuse, I can't see her. So I'm thinking, well, that's not part of the script because normally when they lift her, if the baby's fine, you can see her being lifted. So they put the blue sheet up, I couldn't see her. Then the red light goes off and I'm thinking, I'm already, the baby's already out. What's, <laughs> why is the red light going off? This is kind of making me cry. Yeah, oh and then the pediatricians and the, and the nurses, like they're all rushing in and they completely surround her like a wall. Mm -hmm. And so I can't see her. And I remember the, um, I remember this lady, she was so sweet. She just comes to me, she says, don't worry, everything's fine. Everyone's just excited to see your baby. <laughs> and I was. <laughs> Bit of a stretch there. Bit of a stretch. Yeah, and I was like, oh, okay. So yeah, we're all just checking, making sure that your baby's okay. So I'm calm thinking, yeah, sure, this is fine. But then I, I'm listening to music with, with my um, iPhone, my headphones. I'm thinking, I've listened to two songs. And then I calculate, wait, two songs is not 20 seconds. Two songs, it's about five minutes. And she hasn't cried. So I remember saying to my husband, what's going on? And he said, I don't know what's going on, but don't worry, everything will be fine. And then my heart just sank because I just thought there is no way I've gone through all of this to then lose her and have a stillbirth. And mm. Then I remember just um, saying, you know, Jesus, Jesus, you didn't bring me this far to abandon me. And then in oh, an amen. instant, in literally in an instant, she started crying and they thought she had brain issues, maybe a seizure. So I was thinking, what's that about? They take her to and and I see you. We're separated. And I remember which I is terrible. Let me tell you emotionally. And I know they do that. And I know they have their reasons, but any woman who is separated from a child has PTSD. Yes. Because they can, the fears that go through a mother's head, hand, head when she doesn't have that baby at her breast or on yes. her chest is, it, it's, it's not criminal, but I'm just saying it's a, I know it has to be done, but people never think about the mother in that situation. I know yes. my daughter was separated from her children twice or after yes. delivery, and it was extremely hard to rebound from. So you're having to do that. 
Yes. And then when, when did you get to put your hands on your little angel? So I think I wasn't able to hold her until the third day. Mm. And I just remember, and I actually wasn't even the first person to hold her. And that's what broke <sighs> me. Um, I was really grateful that it was my mother. But I remember when my mother oh, said, good. I remember when my mother said I held her, I was really help, happy that she held her. But I remember thinking, that's my child. I would have loved to have held, so to have, to have held her. And, um, and I think the most painful thing for me was at first I thought, oh, you know what? She's, she's in the NICU. I know it's not great, but I can sleep a little bit. And then once I got out of the room, yeah. I'm seeing all these moms holding their children and it's the emptiness of ha not having your own child in your arms. And, and I remember that after everything, the doctors then say to me, look, we've done all the tests. We've done all the scans. There's nothing wrong with her brain. There's nothing wrong with her at all. It was a mistake on our part. We freaked out. <laughs> yes. Wait, hold it. Yeah. She was fine the whole time, Joy? She was fine. They said they, the reason why they freaked out is because when she was born, she was blue. She was limp. She was non-responsive. Um, just completely non-responsive at all. And Apgar so. Apgar was low. Apgar was low. Obviously. Yeah. yeah, the lowest score. And so because of that, they thought this is unusual, unusual in a planned C-section and her heart rate was dropping. Um, and it's only when she started screaming that she started kicking and moving her arms, which fascinates me because she was such a small baby then, um, that because she was kicking so much, they thought that there was something wrong with her, but I think she was just born a fighter. <laughs> she was saying, look, that woman played soccer or football all those years. Get me over there to her yeah. or I'm gonna yeah. kick a ball up your, between your legs. Yeah. I, I don't blame her. What's her name? Sky. Oh, sweet thing. I love yes. her already. Yeah, so she's 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 really been um she's really been amazing. But I remember when I was going through that, I just remember thinking that I really really just wanted to be with my daughter and just ho just holding on to the idea of I'm going to be with my daughter. I'm going to be with my daughter and that we're going to get through this. Kind of feeling like we're a team that her and I are a team. I remember even yeah, when I was 18 definitely. weeks pregnant and I was trying to recover from my surgery, I was talking to her, visualizing her, meditating about her, praying about her, and just saying like, we're a team, we're gonna get through this together. And feeling like we were a team right from then just made it easier for me because it didn't feel like I was just that stuff was happening to me. It felt like stuff might've been happening, but her and I were gonna conquer the world together. And that felt easier to me than feeling like something was happening to me as an, as an individual. Well, the flip side of that joy in people that you probably coach are people who don't feel like they have anybody. You know, loneliness is a definite condition, isolation, and then people who have family members, but they don't feel like they can lock arms with them. Yes. You know, that, and that's one thing I'm learning as a student at IIN is you, so IIN, I love, they have the primary food, and your secondary food, your secondary foods are the ones that nourish you, but you put to your mouth, yeah. but your primary foods are relationships, spirituality, um, your career, your, the joy you have in your life, whatever. Yeah. And I, I thought about, um, just the people who don't have that, whether it's an older woman who might be widowed, mm. a, a fan, you know, 
a, a marriage that is dying. Mm. And, you know, then you just really start thinking about our human condition isn't just selfies and Instagram pictures. You know, it's much deeper than that. And you're showing me that and that your joy was really when you had your daughter with you and you could lock arms. Yes. And I think that's one thing that's I'd probably say has terrified me most around the COVID era is the isolation. Because even if someone, yeah, because even if someone gets the condition and they end up in hospital, I remember that in my case, all the times I was in hospital, I always had my husband by my side and he never left. Like <laughs> I remember one time he left to shower, but he came right back straight away. And um, the nurses would joke that he was my nurse because he just wouldn't, mm-hmm. he wouldn't leave. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes it's those relationships. If you have those relationships, I think the doctor separating you, kind of like how you're talking about when my baby was born, mm-hmm. separating the mom and the baby, even though they might have their reasons, it does have it does have an impact, um, and so yeah, that's probably the thing that I find most scary about this time is the isolation. Um, what are some things you can do that are we? You tell women to encourage them to maybe maybe they don't have a spouse or they they don't have a living child. You know, what can you do to encourage them to reach out because relationships are so important. Relationships are really important. I guess it's kind of a couple of things. So first is thinking about if there was one person you would love to hear from, like who would that person be? So it may not necessarily be a a, um, um, a husband or a mother, because some people have lost their parents or their loved ones, but there may be someone that they still enjoy the company of. And just having that person um, know that you 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 would like you would like to speak with them um, is is wonderful. Like so, for example, for me, my husband and I we just moved to the Cotswolds and we left London and we've been in London for a decade. And when we came here, it was we took a huge leap of faith because I'd never been to Oxfordshire, never been to this part of the Cotswolds, um, never seen the house. We bought it off plan and didn't <laughs> know the area. Like everything was like I don't know anything. And I remember when we after the sale was complete and the house was almost fully built and we we were coming to see it, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what if this is the worst impulse decision I've ever made? Because it's kind of like, you know, making an impulse decision with a handbag is very different to a house. And I remember when we came here, I remember thinking, we don't know anyone. We knew absolutely no one. And I had a child and um, my family aren't close. And how do you raise children without family or support or anyone? And it was the little things of one being in my church. My church ended up having, has basically has a branch over here. And uh, uh, when literally the day that we moved in, they knew we were coming. And so they literally just, there was one man that was waiting by our house in his car with a big bouquet of flowers to say, welcome to Oxfordshire. And it's just little things like if you, if someone does have faith or would like to be closer to God, finding a church that can support you. And um, the other thing for me was actually just saying hello. I was someone that growing up in, well, not growing up, but living in London over the last decade, I'd become very independent, very much a city girl where you mind your own business and you do your own stuff. But um, one of the things that I used to always believe was that no one would want to talk to me. I mean, why would anyone want to talk to me? I'm a stranger. People have their own friends, their own lives. But one thing that I've realized is that a lot of people would love to have form a relationship 
because unless you're in school, which most of us are not anymore, and we went to school years ago, um, sometimes it can feel like it takes a little bit more to start and spark those new relationships. Um, but in my case, it was just realizing that, okay, if a neighbor walks by me, I can just say hi. And literally just by saying hi, that's starting the conversation. And I literally went from knowing no one to within a period of a few months, having so many phone numbers now that I, I never have to feel alone, even though I started off knowing anyone. But when I was in London, I didn't make that effort. I wasn't part of a church. I wasn't reaching out to anyone. I wasn't simply saying hi to someone in the grocery store. Um, and I was alone, even though I'd lived there for 10 years and I've lived here for a few months. I know way more people than who I, than the num number of people I knew in London. Postpartum is a tough time, yes. especially if you don't have family. Um, you know, I always had my mom to help me, my mother-in-law, you know, I helped my daughter twice a week, you know, yes. with her babies. If you didn't have family nearby and you were not in a city of your origin and it was you and Sky and your nurse, the husband who's a really good nurse at the yeah. hospital, even though he's not a nurse. Yeah. Uh, what did you do then at that point? Because it's a little harder and you have your brain is going crazy. Yes. You know, your, your hormones are just going crazy. And you know at the time they're going crazy, you just can't step out of that because all you can see is the what is truly a, a hormonal imbalance. How did yes. you overcome that? Yeah, I think for me, there's a couple of things. So one, um, one is actually getting outside. So I know that for some women, getting outside can feel like a challenge. Um, in, in my case, it was one of those things that once I found a way to get outside every day, it was amazing. Just being outdoors, being with nature, even if I was on my own, even though I wasn't talking to anyone, it was great to just get out of the house. It was staying indoors that just went me, this just made me feel like I was going crazy. And I know that with lockdown, it can be a lot more complex because <laughs> shops are closed and all that sort of stuff. And for me, it was, I wasn't going to the shops. It was just simply being outdoors and just smelling fresh air and um, taking, taking a walk. Um, even if it's just 30 minutes to an hour, that highlight of my day would be the thing that would give me something to look forward to every day. Um, Did you push Sky in a pram then? Uh, push Sky in a pram. Yeah, push Sky in a pram to the point that it became such a routine for us that she only sleeps in the pram outdoors during the day. <laughs> and so- Well, you started yeah. it. <laughs> so I started it. So it doesn't matter whether it's raining, snowing, freezing, sunny, <laughs> she's happy. And it's that time for myself as well to recharge, to listen to something that I enjoy and to also move my body. And the second thing as well is to, for me, what I found helpful was planning one activity I could do with my daughter um, every day. So prior to COVID, it, I could do like a baby class, but after with COVID, like there are no baby classes, you know, in many places, schools have been closed. And so it's like, what are you going to do? And I know that it depends on the age of your child in terms of what you can do. Um, but for me, just thinking about things in terms of get category. So if it's like one day I'll be thinking, okay, music, and I'll just play lots of music and I'll just dance and just be silly. And then the next day it might be, you know, trying to read a lot of books because she really loves books, just finding something just to vary it up. Even if it's just that one hour or 45 minutes, 
um, that that one hour, 45 minutes can give me something to play with and have fun so that it breaks the sameness. Because sometimes when I feel like I'm doing the same thing every day and I'm stuck indoors and I don't see friends, it really, really, it, it's, it's hard. Oh yeah, and the final thing, the third thing is to call someone. So my daughter now, she is obsessed with her grandparents and she really looks forward to me phoning my parents. And now she has like a, she has a phone book in her head. Therefore, if I phone one grandma, I have to phone the other grandma. And then if I phone that That's grandma, the thing. exactly. I have to phone the, all the grandpas. I have to phone her aunt. I have to phone everyone in her phone book in her they head. FaceTime. FaceTime. Yeah. And that kills a lot of time. So, <laughs> so, you know, that's like an hour done and it's energizing just to speak to my family and see them getting excited and she's getting excited. And that also takes the pressure off me to have to do something. Um, so, so yeah, I so say those three things definitely have helped me get through this kind of COVID time with a, with a little one. How old is she now? So she's two now. So yeah, most of her life has been COVID related. Yes, yeah. I mean, it, it made it made socializing interesting because yeah. in, initially she she was a bit afraid of people, and I remember right. I remember when we we started going out, and then she would because uh, we didn't give her a mask because uh, she doesn't need to wear one at her age, and I remember she would zip up her jacket covering her oh. nose and her mouth, and I was like, "What are you doing?" And she's like. <laughs> COVID. <laughs> yep. And she was seeing what you were doing. Exactly. And I just thought, wow, she she won't have a recollection of when she was born when COVID wasn't wasn't around. She she won't remember that because that was a tiny portion well, of her earlier years. Right. But what she sees is fear. Yes. Right? Yes. And we want our kids to not have fear. Yes. Of being outside yes seeing other humans you know there's a boogeyman maybe <laughs> fear fear the boogeyman you know or there are certain things we don't need to you know, this is family conversation we don't need to get too dark with this but my point is i was having lunch with a friend the other day and um we are by the time this airs our mask mandate will lift in we're in arkansas in the middle of the US. Oh, wow and she's she said but her son is still, her five-year-old's going to still wear that mask. And I said, why? And she goes, because she's heard the teacher say, be a good example. Wow. And she said, she's trying to now tell him, but there's nothing to be fearful of. You know, mm. we don't want to live in fear and we want to have relationships. And you have real community when mm. I can see your mouth, when oh, you can definitely. see my eyes, you know, where we can touch and hug and not just FaceTime and not to be fearful of it. So it's overcoming. To me, that's a hurdle. Definitely. That a lot of parents are going to have to face. But how do you view nutrition and how has going through health coaching school changed that? Yeah, so it's so interesting because my journey with nutrition has, has changed because I'd say prior to my surgery, I guess it's kind of two parts. First thing is, is that I thought nutrition was about dieting. So don't yeah. eat this, right. do eat that. Right. And right. I realized that I wasn't sustaining what I was trying to eat. I was trying to eat healthy recipes and I just wasn't having fun. And so one thing that I learned from IAN is how to have fun with the food that you eat and to really explore and experiment. So um, for example, one thing is that I remember 
I remember when someone told me the concept of kombucha before I and I was like, why would you drink? Oh, right. Why would you drink kombucha? Now it's actually my favorite drink, and my husband always wants to drink mine. I'm like, no, get your own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just one of those things where it's kind of like having fun. And so for me, I yeah, I, re I really enjoyed also switching things up. So what I really love to do is I actually love to have like themed dinner nights. So for example, oh, cute. so for example, like on a Monday, it would be something like really, really green and really healthy, basically plant-based, whether it's vegan, vegetarian, just matter, just plant-based. Um, and then on Tuesday, it'd be like some sort of fish dish. And then I'll like research so many different recipes. And on Wednesdays, it's kind of like a, a Japanese meal. And then Thursday would be like an Italian meal. And on Friday, so your be husband like comes home every night. night going, "What country are we in tonight?" <laughs> yeah, and um, and it it actually just made it so much fun. Now, ever since I had a child, it became a little bit more difficult to try new recipes because when I was in IIN, I was literally cooking three to four new recipes every single week without fail. And my husband was literally like, "What's what are we eating? <laughs> what are we eating tonight? And the amazing thing about exploring with food and finding things that taste great is that you end up having a bigger repertoire of recipes of healthy food rather than necessarily trying to follow a menu plan. So having like your own menu of healthy recipes that you can eat every week has been um, amazing. Um, but then the challenge that I had is that after my surgery, a lot of the so-called healthy foods, I actually have to be dangerous, are actually quite dangerous for me. So for example, things like nuts um, can create obstructions. And that's actually why I had the obstruction when I was pregnant, because I was having, I was, it was my plant-based Monday that created the blockage. <laughs> That dang plant-based Monday does it every time. It gets me every time. Every time. And so, you know, I was thinking, is my body just wanting an excuse out of plant-based Mondays or what? But but yeah, so um, so it's kind of, and I guess what it brings me back to is, you know, at IAN, you learn about bio-individuality and really understanding that everybody is unique and what might be food for someone could literally be poison for another person. And, and that's what Joshua, the founder of IIN says, exactly. and you learned that, you exemplified that. Yes, and it's interesting because, you know, it's kind of like our bodies change and there can be all sorts of reasons why our bodies changes. But in my case, it was partly the surgery. And so I kind of had to learn my, like relearn what my body wanted to eat again and what my body could handle. And so that's been a, a new journey and a new discovery in itself. As we all are learning, all disease begins in the gut. Yes, it really and, does. And so you really know that because your pancreas is a part of that gut. Exactly. So does that mean, since the pancreas is the storage for, insulin is important, as we know, to usher glucose to the cells. Yeah. But we live in a country of over-insulinated people yes. <laughs> that who are overweight because they've called their insulin to play too often. Yeah. Have you compromised the health? The pancreas isn't very big, but it's very, very important. Yes. Have you compromised that pancreas in a way that you do get hyperinsulinemia? You do get run high blood sugar? It's a very interesting. It's a very interesting question. So one thing that I didn't realize was that um, one thing that can also affect um, how your body copes with glucose is your is your muscles. So in my case. Because, oh, like lactic acid and some other things? Yeah, so basically my surgeon was basically saying because I had been doing so much exercise that oh. when they actually were testing my, my glucose levels, 
they were the same. <laughs> so even though I have half of a pancreas and it's um, inflamed, so it's not even like optimal or healthy, um, my body was, was still able to digest foods and everything was still balanced and normal. So even when I was in my pregnancy, I was at a very high risk of, um, oh, I've forgotten the term. There's, um, there's a, there's a term when women, um, basically have gestational diabetes. Gestational yes, diabetes. Yes. So yeah. I was at very high risk of getting, um, gestational diabetes. And I remember the, the, um, the doctors telling me that they, they genuinely believed I was going to get it. And then I had to keep on doing tests during my pregnancy. And they're like, nope, your, your levels are normal. And so it's one of those things where I truly believe that if you're really thinking about your health holistically and you're thinking about exercising in addition to, you know, eating foods that are really, really good for your body, then it can really help to bring things down. So even though I am definitely at risk, of getting diabetes or gestational diabetes, it is preventable if you, uh, or at least, um, I guess it depends on some people, but it is possible to not have to have that um, by essentially monitoring and um, monitoring what you eat, yeah. Well, another component to the philosophy that we subscribe to of uh, holistic health, that our health is a holistic you know, looking at it in all different ways. The one thing many of us hate are things that are man-made medications and drugs unnecessarily. Well, you found yourself in a situation, yes. sister, where you had to take the antibiotics. Yes. And I know you hated it. You had to take the anti-inflammatories. Yes. See, I say these things, these are trigger words for anyone who studies health or nutrition or knows about the human body. They are so bad on your gut's health. And mm. if we are saying all disease begins in the gut, you had to compromise that, but you had to do it in order to live and yes. deliver to deliver sky. So how did you handle that? Is it again, are we going back to mindset? Think, during that yes. time you just thought, I, I'm gonna power through this. Yes, I guess it's it's a couple of things. So it's first just um I guess one of the things is, I'll give you an example. So my husband, he is completely like, it's, it's like he um, reacts, like he's, he's like he's allergic to antibiotics or medical intervention. Even just the idea of me having the surgery, it was like a no-no. Like, why don't we just try and heal the tumor in a natural way? And I'm thinking, I wanna yeah, live. I, I'm not gonna take a rest yeah. because pancreatic cancer, if it gets you, <laughs> It's not, it's not friendly. So, yeah. so I just remember being like, okay, whatever, do whatever you need to do. Give me whatever medication you need to give me. But after my surgery, even things like blood thinners and the different stuff that they were giving me, I remember saying to my surgeon, how soon can I come off it in a safe way? And he was saying, well, I'm not sure if you come off it that soon. And it was really thinking about, okay, how can I be healthy enough for him to think that I can come off it. And so really just working on my health by, you know, by influencing what I could eat that was approved by my doctor and making choices that were really good for me. Then that's challenging. There's no kombucha at the hospital. There's no kombucha. But one thing that, that my husband did do is every morning he went and he bought um, juices. And the juices, they were they had no or fiber. The healthy juices. Yes, because mm -hmm. I wasn't allowed to have fiber. So for them, they were saying, what you should eat is <gasps> things like custard, jelly, uh, um, mm. basically all the stuff that isn't healthy for you. But then obviously that slows your healing pro 
progress. So my husband was saying, no, I'm going to give her juices. So I was living on like beetroot juice and green juice and that juice. And all of these juices are actually essentially what gave me the, the nutrients that I needed, even though it wasn't solid food, it was exactly what my body needed. And then I was actually able to come off it. And it's kind of like my daughter as well. When she was born, she was <laughs> drugged up so much. I remember that they put her, I can't remember what they gave her, but she was knocked out to the point that she couldn't even wake up. And <laughs> she kept on trying to wake up. <laughs> like you'd see her eyelids just like trying to open them. <laughs> she just passed back out again. I remember thinking she didn't get skin to skin. She didn't get her mother and she's on all these drugs. And I remember seeing a doctor and he's like, a great place to start is probiotics. And she was in so much pain. As soon as we started giving her those probiotics, she was getting better. Oh, they better. allowed you to give her, the baby, even probiotics. Well, this was out after she was out of the hospital. So, and that's okay, the thing good. is that there's like a time. So a lot of things are temporary. <laughs> I guess everything is temporary. So I was just thinking, okay, she's on these drugs. It's not forever. Like, I just need to remember it's not forever. It's only temporarily. And then we can rebuild and regain our strength. And then it will be a thing of the past. And once you've rebuilt and regained your strength, it's, like I don't even think about that time anymore. It's 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 good. a memory. Yeah, good. Yeah. Good. Uh, what are things you do to practice good, healthy nutrition, uh, both primary and secondary foods, uh, with Sky and your husband? Uh, so one thing that I love to do is I love to cook, and my daughter loves to cook with me. Good. So we cook together good. all the time. Um, the other thing is I really really love meal planning. Meal planning makes it so much easier for me. If I know what I'm going to cook in advance, I'm much more likely to eat it. I can't, I will, I will not go to a grocery store and think of, and just grab re random ingredients to make because then I just won't necessarily be that creative. Um, and for me, I've also made a commitment. So for me, commitments are major. So if I make a commitment to work out five times a week, I make a commitment. So even if I don't feel like it, I'm not doing it because I have to, or because it's in my diary, but because I made a commitment to myself that this is something that I wanna do even when I don't feel like it. So if part of my commitment is I'm gonna do this even when I don't feel like it, then um, I stick to it. So for example, I stopped working out consistently after my daughter was born and um, I just stopped because every time I would work out consistently, I'd start to have like a partial obstruction. So I thought, Am I exercising too hard? Am I not? I don't want to go back to hospital. I've got a little one. I put her to bed. I don't want her to have any night when I'm in hospital. So I just, around four or five weeks, I would get pains and so I would stop. <laughs> anyway, so I made a commitment that no, this time I'm going to commit to it. So it's now been eight weeks, no partial obstruction, feeling really good and really finding that balance where it does feel good and it doesn't actually create any problems. So you really are showing us what it's like to listen to your body. Yes, yes. Our bodies tell us things, but we think, well, I'll just go get something out of the cabinet and make that pain go away. But yes. that's really not our goal. Our goal is to find out what's wrong. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. And and what can we do to treat it? Yes, exactly. And mm -hmm. once And once you kind of realize that you can really listen to your body and your body is your friend, even though sometimes in my case, it can feel like I'm I'm frustrated that things aren't working and I don't know why and I don't know what to do. Um, 
just kind of thinking back to, similar to how when I was pregnant with my daughter and I was thinking we we're a team. So me and my body are a team and it sends me signals. And so, and so, yeah. Well, you are, you are wise beyond your years and a delight. Oh, so thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes. The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by the Clanton Boys at clantoncreative.com. For more information, go to the show notes and they can produce a podcast for you and make you podcast famous. Mm -hmm.